Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Well, here we are, a couple days before Christmas, and uh, as usual, Every year I get a little bit of this. Haven't seen it much this year, so it's been kind of a relief. Used to get a little, uh, get so tired of rolling my eyes, I'd get a headache because I'd get so many things in my inbox or something like that reminding me why Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas because of its pagan roots. You know, going back to this, uh, the pagans celebrating the winter solstice and all the other stuff, and you find the connection. Again, the pagan origins of things like the Christmas tree and even the date. We don't know when Jesus was born, why we... Uh, uh, you know, all we did was take this winter solstice celebra- celebration and try to Christianize it. Um, I have read great arguments, by the way, that argue for a December date, but I've also read great arguments that argue for a late spring, early summer date. That's really not the issue. I think one of the great things about celebrating Christmas when we do is that it has taken something that certainly was thoroughly pagan, the winter solstice celebration and the things surrounding that, and utterly redeeming it into something that is Christ-centered. And doing it, centering it around an event that certainly did happen. We don't know when Jesus was born precisely. So to take a celebration and say, you know what, we're going to take this, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate the birth of Christ. And you know what? It works. You got... You, you don't find too many people. I know. I know they're there still. There are people who would, re- you know, Wiccans or whatever, who would rather celebrate the winter solstice and ignore the birth of Christ. But this is a, um, it's, I just think it's kind of a pessimistic take on the whole thing to say that they took these unholy elements and shoehorned them into a non-existent holiday. Uh, what I see, again, is the utter redemption of something that was pagan to the point that most people don't, aren't aware of its pagan origin, origins. And, and I don't sweat the war on Christmas, all right? I don't fly into a rage when somebody posts some faux-alarming article about the color of Starbucks cups this year. Uh, I understand the decisions some companies make when they instruct their employees to say happy holidays, uh, and I don't get mad about that. Uh, I found out if, if nine times out of ten, if I respond with Merry Christmas, they smile and say Merry Christmas back. It's like they just needed my permission to say that. All right? The thing that I've always laughed about is no matter how much the world has tried to secularize this holiday, to take Jesus out of it, whether it's with Santa Claus or just lights or the crass commercialism, it's still like I'm in on this great big secret because we know what it's all about. We know that at the center of all this stuff is the truth that Jesus Christ was born and that this is what we're celebrating. It's right there in the name. And, uh, you know, it, and it's, there. it's not just there. It's there in a huge way. Christmas is the lifeblood of some companies, particularly retail establishments, Right? And we've got Christmas, Christmas parades, decorations, sales, TV shows and movies, special events, acts of service, gifts to charities, and all of these things, whether people acknowledge it or not, are happening in the context of celebrating the birth of Christ. 
And even with all that, some argue that there's no biblical support for celebrating Christmas. And, and in a strict sense, that's correct. But that also reminds me of how twisted some people get. I'll make the connection here in a little bit. Uh, you know, there are some people who, uh, I know a, a friend of mine, who, uh, who would often call and ask for help, ask for assistance, not just around Christmas, but through the year, uh, had nothing to do with church. He had nothing to do with church. He, he just it was an angry, bitter pill of a guy uh, who, I won't, I won't bother explaining the connection I had with him, but he, a, but he was a friend. But he would just get mad. And one of the things he would always argue against, I can't bring myself to go to church on a Sunday when I know that the Sabbath is Saturday. And it's like it, it, he was just so thick. It didn't matter how many times I tried to explain this to him, but I'd try again. But for the record, we don't go to church on Sunday because we think Sunday is the Sabbath. There are two separate things. Do you know why we go to church on Sunday? Do you know when that tradition started? started with the resurrection. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the believers of his day, of his followers, began to meet on the first day of the week. They didn't say, this is now the Sabbath. They said, this is the day we worship. Why? This is now the Lord's day. Why is it the Lord's day? Because something happened that was so significant on that day that we're not going to meet in the synagogue on Saturday anymore. We're going to gather together on the Lord's day. This whole hundreds of years of tradition and law were, were completely transformed by the event of the resurrection. And the point is that uh, we don't have a prophetic mandate. Yeah, th- but they didn't either. There was nobody that stood up uh, and said, Thus saith the Lord. No longer shall you gather on, uh, no longer shall you observe Sabbath on Saturday, but yea, verily, you shall meet on the first day of the week. They just started doing it. It, was, it just arose. We see them doing it, so our biblical pattern is that. But they didn't have that. They didn't have a, a, a legal reason. They didn't have a prophetic mandate, just the power of the event itself. But it's the same with Christmas in my mind. It doesn't matter to me if the early church celebrated it. It's still worth celebrating. And we also don't have a mandate to do it. And I I like to look at it this way. You know, uh, you may remember that in Old Testament Israel, according to Mosaic law, there were seven feasts every year that the Israelites were commanded to observe. They had to keep these feasts. Uh, You had Passover, Feast of Unleavened, Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles. And each one of these feasts was observed in specific ways. They weren't all the same thing, all right? There was usually some form of sacrifice involved in them, but other than that, there were a lot of different details. And some of them were connected, of course, like Passover and unleavened bread. Um, And if you study these things, there are also important New Testament truths that are represented in each one of these feasts. Jesus is in the Old Testament feasts of Israel in a very real way, and it's worth a series sometime. Not going to go into it today because it's not the direction I'm going, but I do want you to see, this is really my, it's a simple point. I told you a short sermon. The thing I really want you to see is this. They were commanded to keep these feasts. And it's easy, again, I think, as we read the Bible and, uh, you know, reading through the Old Testament and talk about whether they kept these feasts, because even though they were required to keep them, how many of you know they didn't? 
They went years without even keeping the Sabbath, the, the, the seven-year Sabbath. They went years without observing a Passover. And that was the big one. But it was still the law. And part of the reason they suffered, part of the reason they wound up in captivity is because they refused to keep these feasts. But they were feasts. They were parties. They were celebrations. They were holidays. These were the Old Testament holidays, all right? Uh, they were commanded to keep the feasts. And I think sometimes when we look back and we, and we read about their lives, we forget that they had lives like we have lives. They got busy. There were seasons where they got behind on their work. There were seasons when they were struggling. There were people who were being born. There were people who were dying. There were people who were getting married. There were people working. There were people struggling. There were relationship, uh, broken relationships, broken marriages, rebellious children, accidents, sicknesses. All these things were a part of their society too. There was some measure or manifestation of everything that we face today in their day. And you know there just had to be, there had to be people who when uh, the Feast of Tabernacles rolled around would think, what is the point in dropping everything I've, I've, I'm doing right now? I'm so behind because of this, never mind the fact that I'm not even in the mood to celebrate this right. Why should I go out and live in a tent for a week? Not only am I not going to enjoy it, not only am I not into it this year, it's irresponsible. I really should be focusing on something else. It would be hypocritical of me to go f- celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles when I'm fighting with my wife or, or struggling with this or the other thing. But it was the law. It was the law. God gave them the feasts and compelled them to keep the feasts because whether they knew it or not, they could not afford to forget the truth that was behind that feast, any of the feasts. This is why he did it. It wasn't just to give them a break. There was some truth. There was spiritual significance and a historical event behind each one of these feasts. And they couldn't afford to forget those things. I love the way Ravi Zacharias puts this. I've used this phrase a number of times over the years. He said the feast and the legal compulsion to observe these feasts gave them what he called the legitimate, gave them the right to be legitimately preoccupied with certain doctrines. A legitimate preoccupation. They could drop their struggles, their work, their depression, everything they were uh, wrestling with, everything that was a distraction from this, and they could join the community in this massive, for instance, in the case of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles, they'd just participate in this massive camp out where they remembered how God had dwelt among them during the Exodus and during all the years in the wilderness. And this was supposed to remind them that he was a God who dwelt among his people and didn't abandon them, even when they were faithless to him. They celebrated the abiding presence of the Lord. And you know what it did? It put everything else in perspective for them. Now again, we are under no command to celebrate Christmas. There is no law. But I think it's good for us to be legitimately preoccupied with this doctrine. And I also get it. You know what the most important event in the Bible is? It's the resurrection. The resurrection is, is, the, is, is what Christianity stands or falls on. It is the culmination of God's plan. With the, without resurrection, there is no salvation. There is no Christianity. I get that. But you know what? In order to rise from the dead, 
he had to die. And in order for God the Son to die, he had to live as a man. And in order to live as a man, guess what? He had to be born. He had to be born. And that birth, that moment when Christ was born, that was the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecies, hundreds of years of promises to give the Messiah that the people were looking for. Israel had longed for their Messiah. They had hoped for their Messiah. They desperately wanted the arrival of the Messiah, God's anointed one who would save them. This, was, this had been promised, really, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It was, speci- it was fleshed out a little bit more in God's covenant with Abraham. But they knew, and they knew, and, and as the prophets prophesied, uh, as they preached and as they wrote, uh, these promises became more concrete. Daniel even gave them uh, what kind of amounts to a mathematical formula about when, they, about when they could expect to see the Messiah. But they knew someone was coming, a Savior from God who was going to save them. And depending on what they were dealing with in their culture, whether they were under the thumb of the Persians uh, or then later on the Romans, that's who they saw themselves as being saved from. As we've talked about, we talk, I encourage you to get Wednesday night's message. He didn't come to save the Jews from the Romans. He came, he came to save mankind from their sins, from their sin nature. So they longed for the Messiah. And by the time Jesus was born, there were people who, because of the math in the book of Daniel, were actively looking for the Messiah. They knew he had to be on the scene. And I honestly don't know if they expected him to just arrive straight out of heaven as a grown man or if they just expected him to be born and grow up somewhere else and then arrive fully formed as the Messiah. Because they were looking for that. They weren't waiting for... You know, it's, it's interesting. You ever, you ever read anything about... Uh, I only... Uh, Tibetan Buddhism only interests me because, as I've told you before, I used to work for the Dalai Lama's nephew, and so I met some people who were kind of important to that. And so I did a little reading. And you know, when the, when the Dalai Lama dies, they immediately go into a search among young children for who the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama is. They don't wait for him to grow up and manifest his lamaness. They they look for some clue to identify. Ah, this is the one. Uh, and it's interesting that when Jesus was born, that didn't slip, God didn't allow that to slip under the radar. When Jesus came on the scene, and we know when his ministry started. After his baptism by John, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and then he was led into the wilderness, then his ministry started. But his birth was important. How do we know it was important? Because God didn't let it slip under the radar. He didn't just let the fact emerge over time. He put a message in the stars for the Magi to see. And he prepared Jesus' mother and father with an angelic visitation and his aunt and uncle with an angelic visitation. And then the angels appeared in glorious fashion to announce the birth to the shepherds. Today is born unto you in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I made it. All those years of waiting 
And there were some people actively looking at this time. And still, what a stunning announcement. Today is born a Savior, and not just any Savior. This isn't another Gideon. This isn't another, this isn't even another David. This is the one. The one you've been waiting for. Today is born unto you in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Then the angels appeared in glory, and they were saying, Glory to God in the highest. Again, what's my point? This is worth celebrating. Not only that, it is worth everything that we can do as believers to keep Christ at the center of our celebration. My advice is don't waste your time railing against commercialism or Santa or secularization as a whole. Just keep your focus on Jesus. You know, that's kind of a parallel there with uh, the verse that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I'll hear, hear from heaven and heal their land. You know, he doesn't say you've got to turn the whole country around. Just the believers in that country, my people who are called by my name. We don't need to protest any sort of secular expression of the holiday celebration. But if we as believers recognize that this is, is, is an event that as believers, we really should celebrate, keep Jesus at the center of it. And also, going back to what I said about the Old Testament feasts and how, how uh, inconvenient they, they, they certainly were at some times to the Israelites, I want you to see that no matter what else is going on in your life, Christmas is still worth celebrating. I know there are struggles, there are challenges, there are circumstances. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say something along the lines of, then they'll name a certain holiday, whether it's Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas. We just don't look forward to it anymore because last Christmas, so-and-so died. And I know some of you, just statistically speaking, it's a probability that somebody in here has lost a loved one on a holiday or during a holiday season. This happened with Beth's dad years ago. And I don't ever want to make light of that. I just want you to keep it in perspective. This is bigger than that. And I also want to encourage you, because I think some people allow themselves to feel guilty you see where I'm going with this? Uh, let, let me know if I'm not. Just kind of look at me crazy if you don't understand, and I'll try to clarify a little bit more. It's like if something bad happens to somebody else, or they lose a loved one during this time, then they feel guilty for carrying on with the celebration. Well, I shouldn't be celebrating. I should be, feel sad for their sake. This is a bigger deal. God didn't give the Israelites that out. Yes, I understand. God loves them. God says precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. But he says now keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Keep the Passover. Keep the Feast of Trumpets. Keep the Day of Atonement. There's these doctrines, these truths are more important than your momentary sorrow. Seven over 7,000 people a day die just in the United States. And this is going to keep happening until Jesus comes back. It's a part of life. It's tough. Don't let circumstances, even tragic, close, personal circumstances, rob you of the joy 
of being legitimately preoccupied with the birth of Jesus Christ, with the entrance of light and life and truth into this world. It was a glorious moment. Do we have to celebrate it? Is there a legal requirement? Absolutely not. But what a glorious opportunity we have to celebrate it, to sing his praises, to look at the world around us, this very world that seems hell-bent, literally, on removing Jesus from everything in public, and to see it transformed with lights and trees and decorations and everything, and just, I just kind of giggle, say, you're doing this for Jesus whether you realize it or not. And I'm receiving it as, as a celebration of Jesus anyway. It just increases my joy. 2,000 years ago, God the Son stepped into space, time, and matter, took on flesh, and was born for us. Knowing full well, knowing full well before he even came, what that birth was going to lead to. Death on the cross, and then a glorious resurrection. He was born for us, and this is whatever, uh, you know, when, when we talk about the traditions of Christmas, you know, people want to say, well, the tree represented some sort of pagan deity back then, and we say, well, you know what? Tree represents to me, it's an evergreen, which, which, which uh, represents eternal life. It's a tree which represents the cross. Uh, the lights represent the light of the world. We can, we can, again, we're under no legal compulsion to define anything a certain way, but find some redeeming, redeeming value. But really, from the time we are kids, we, there's one thing probably above all that at least in some part of our life we associated with Christmas more than anything else, and that's what? gifts, presents. And this is what we're talking about today. God's gift to the world. God's gift to mankind. And it wasn't just, when we see a gift, we see it as just, as what it is. It's not something we earned. It's somebody, something somebody gave us. But we also see a gift usually as something that is not necessary. It's a, it's a, uh, a luxury. It's a bonus. The gift God gave us was the most expensive gift in history. But he gave it because it absolutely was necessary. Had God withheld the gift of his son, we would be lost in our sin. This is what the salvation message is. This is why Jesus was born. And it's a beautiful celebration. It really is. And I know Easter is a beautiful celebration, but there's something about that time of year when we are really focused on what, frankly, is the ugliness of the cross. There's a beauty and there's an ugliness because it was a horrible, gory mess when he hung there. And the manger scene and the, and, and the, uh, the, the sweetness of the season uh, makes, the, makes the birth of Christ much more, uh, it's easier on the eyes. But knowing what he was born for, when God gave us this gift, it wasn't like he was horrified to find out that we killed him 33 years later. He knew what he was doing when he gave him to us. So what makes the gift all that, uh, that much more powerful, that much more of a gift? The good news is God gave that gift, gives that gift to everyone. The bad news is if you choose not to receive that gift, you are lost. 
God doesn't say, hey, I got you this. If you don't want it, that's fine. I'll keep it. He says, I got you this because you need it. If you don't want it, you're refusing something that I, your creator, am telling you that you need. It's salvation. Just like we talked about little Nick being born with a need for a Savior, you were born with a need for a Savior. I was born with a need for a Savior. We are not going to get out of this on our own. We inherited a disease called original sin. And God's plan from the beginning was to rescue us from that. He didn't come into our world and mess us up and say, hey, looks like y'all are having a good time. Just want to show you that I'm God, and if you don't worship me, I think I'll create a hell and send you to it. No. He created us for himself, and we rebelled. Because I didn't create hell for you. I didn't create you for hell. I created you to be with me, enjoy this relationship for eternity. But you lost. You, you abandoned this. You rebelled. But guess what? I still love you. So I'm going to go to great lengths to get you back. But sin has to be paid for. So we think, oh, great. What have I got to do to pay for my sin? The bad news is <laughs> there's nothing you can do. You don't have enough. The good news is God paid it. But you have to understand he paid it. As God, he didn't just say, forget it. I'll just wipe that away. He paid that debt. And he paid it by taking your sin, my sin, the world's sin, putting it on his precious son who came to this world as a baby a little over 2,000 years ago. And he judged that sin on the cross. When you talk about the wrath of God, we as believers do not have to fear the wrath of God. God's wrath on sin was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. All of our sins are under that blood. But it's not automatic. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.